This is the KOTO Community Radio News for Friday, June 30th. I'm Grace Richards. And I'm Julia Caulfield. In today's headlines, 4th of July Parade Extravaganza. Eyes to ears with Bella Eatman. A parade of pies. And a mountain weather forecast. Coming up this Tuesday, the town of Telluride prepares for its annual 4th of July festivities. KOTO News popped into a meeting with the parade committee, who attest that this year's parade is gearing up to be bigger than ever. Community member Susan Kramer has been working the parade for 16 years. My name is Susan Kramer, and I got involved with the parade back in the early, early 2000s. She's part of the committee of volunteers who oversee the logistics of the event. But Kramer says the event was not always run this way. Back when I started volunteering, there were a cast of 1,000 people to help and put on the parade. And then um, now the committee is eight people, and we still put on the parade. This year's parade could be one of the largest in Telluride's history, with as many as 25 floats already registered and many more expected the day before the event. And these are big groups of people. I mean, it has seemed in years past that we had as many people in the parade as were watching the parade because of all the big groups and organizations that come through. This year is shaping up to be one of the biggest, I think. Although float registration cuts off at 5.30, Kramer says that the committee is happy to accommodate last-minute participants. Uh, anybody is welcome to be in it, and if you're not registered, of course, you can still be in it. We just call you a renegade. Parade participants travel from far and wide to strut their stuff on Main Street, decking out their vehicles to the nines in hopes of winning an award in the float contest. Yeah, oh, it's a big deal, and it's not just Colorado. We'll get people from, we've had them from back east. It's, yeah, it's a huge thing. Mid-meeting, the committee called up community member Marilyn Branch to make an important request. I want to know if you're going to be around 4th of July. Absolutely. Are you kidding me? Would you like to be the grand marshal of our parade for all the hard work you've done for Rotary in the town of Telluride? The title of grand marshal grants Branch the honor of leading the entire parade procession down the street. The committee has a slew of logistical puzzles to deal with. Issues like horse trailer parking, wayward water balloons, a Facebook live stream, crowd safety, and MC selection. But when Tuesday rolls around, the committee's hard work will bring together an estimated 20,000 people for a day of community celebration. And so, yeah, 11 o'clock, the flyover signals the official start. The veterans will have already gone down, accompanied by West Wind. And, uh, yeah, and then it's, then all heck breaks loose. If weather conditions permit, the festivities culminate in a dazzling fireworks spectacle. Birds are singing in the trees, both real and artistically. This week on Eyes to Ears, Telluride High School's Bella Eatman brings us into the forest. Have a listen. Good evening once again, everyone. Welcome to Eyes to Ears. I am your host, Bella Eatman, and this is a Koto segment where I visit local art galleries and tell you, the listener, what painting grabbed my attention the most. 
I visited the Mix Art Gallery once more, only to encounter a mixed-media collage painting called Forest Five by Luis Bivar. Looking from bottom to top, we are first bombarded with a vast array of flowers in various types and colors, most of them being warm-colored, with a few in their shades of violet and the occasional white-petaled flower. From behind them grows the lime and jaded cacti. Along with tall brown mushrooms, with their caps resembling a well-baked loaf, rising above that, we see the tree trunks in various bright hues, possibly painted with their own stencils. But that doesn't stop the paint itself from dripping away from the mold and down to the botanical chaos. The trees from behind are the ones that stand so close against a harsh white light. Rendering these trunks as beige silhouettes, fluttering off in their own ways, and go many butterflies in some resemblance to lost flower petals, and even a hummingbird will stand apart from this flock. This flock is not made from hummingbirds. No, like the flowers below, the birds above stay in no mold of just one species, but many. Owls, cardinals, finches—you name it—and it's probably sitting there in the foliage of many values and dyes. And all those birds, mushrooms, flowers, butterflies, and cacti were all pictures, cut out as the collage pieces of a bigger, brighter collection of trees. Thank you for listening to this episode of Eyes to Ears. When looking at this painting, it felt like I wasn't actually seeing the piece itself. It would be perhaps how I'd imagine one would experience looking at a Lovecraftian entity, which is to say that for a moment I didn't know what I was looking at exactly. My brain couldn't detect the patterns as instantaneously as it usually could. It was a strange painting, for sure. But why don't you go ahead and visit the Mix Art Gallery for yourself and think about what your thoughts were on the painting? And that marks the end of this week's Eyes to Ears episode on Kodo. My name is Bella Eatman, and I hope you have a wonderful rest of your day. Bakers prepare. Monday, July third is the Wilkinson Library's annual pie baking contest. To fuel your inspiration, we're replaying a story from last year's competition. In one of his first stories, KOTO's Gavin McGough reports the contest was a delicious success. This story originally aired in July 2022. They say that baking at elevation is no piece of cake, but that didn't deter the small crowd gathered in the Wilkinson Library this past Tuesday evening. July 5th marked the library's annual pie baking contest, and with six stellar entries, the competition was as stiff as a whipped meringue. Oh, that's a beautiful pie. Sire, you made that? I did, yeah. Oh, you did a great job. Thank you. That's a gorgeous um, pie. So- Bobby T. Smith, a professional baker and former bookshop owner here in Telluride, is a longtime contestant judge. Before the contest, she shares her thoughts on the makings of a perfect pie. 
A pie has to have a delicious crust. It's either going to be flaky or flavorful or the filling is really important. If it's a fruit pie, it can't just fall apart when you cut it. It's got to have good flavor. It's fun to, to judge all these creative and wonderful pies that people come up with. Many contestants, among them Allison Lenslink, agree that the crust is a make-or-break moment for pie success. Like You have to have a good crust because anyone, like a filling is not that hard to make. It's just like fruit and sugar. But if you don't have a good crust, then it's not pie. And it's like, you know. Judges award prizes for the top three pies. And after the official tasting, the participants help themselves and vote for the much-coveted People's Choice Award. People's Choice. Kate, a student at the Telluride Elementary School, took home not only the People's Choice, but also the judge's second-place award for her super-duper chocolate pie. First place went to the contest reigning champion, Gretchen Williams, for a cherry rhubarb pie with an almond streusel top. She attributes her pie-baking inspiration to memories of her grandmother, and she workshopped the recipe for crust perfection. Yeah, I made a pie yesterday as a test as well and changed a couple of things today. My boyfriend is really supportive and helps me pay for all the pie groceries. <laughs> so I'm super excited. I won again. I feel yeah. bad because everyone had great pies. The super duper chocolate pie was my favorite pie for sure. And shout out to the young lady who made it. Good for her. Not everyone went home with an award. But with six pies to taste, every participant's a winner. A plate full of pie? There's no better prize than that. I'm excited to be eating. <laughs>
On Tuesday, the court ruled in favor of a Colorado man accused of stalking a female musician. Billy Counterman sent hundreds of unwanted Facebook messages to singer-songwriter Coles Whalen over a two-year period. Counterman argued he was suffering from mental illness at the time. The high court's 7-2 ruling overturned a previous stalking conviction by a lower court. The decision was authored by Justice Elena Kagan. It says Counterman's messages were protected under the First Amendment because state prosecutors failed to show he was aware they were threatening in nature. Counterman has a history of violent threats towards women. He was on supervised release for a separate conviction when he sent the messages in question. In another First Amendment case on Friday, the Supreme Court ruled 6-3 to three along ideological lines in favor of a web developer who refused to create websites celebrating same-sex weddings out of religious objections. Writing for the majority, Justice Neil Gorsuch stated, quote, Colorado seeks to compel speech she does not wish to provide. He goes on to write, quote, If she wishes to speak, she must either speak as the state demands or face sanctions for expressing her own beliefs. In a dissent, Justice Sonia Sotomayor objected that, quote, The court for the first time in its history grants a business open to the public a constitutional right to refuse to serve members of a protected class. The case could have consequences in Colorado and 29 other states that have laws requiring businesses open to the public to serve everyone regardless of race, religion, ethnicity, gender, or sexual orientation. Governor Jared Polis announced on Wednesday that Colorado and Wyoming will be working together on efforts to reduce greenhouse gases. As KOTO's Lucas Brady Woods reports, the interstate collaboration focuses on a technology called direct air capture. It's a process that pulls carbon dioxide from the atmosphere and stores it for other uses. An agreement signed by the state's governors lays out how Colorado and Wyoming plan to develop a regional industry around the technology. The goal is to reduce carbon dioxide while also creating jobs and new economic opportunities. The two states will work together to apply for grant funding, identify infrastructure needs, and develop measurements for carbon removal. Colorado Governor Jared Polis and Wyoming Governor Mark Gordon announced the partnership at the Western Governors Conference in Boulder. They said that the two states already have the infrastructure and other resources to make direct air capture possible. The agreement is the first of its kind in the U.S. I'm Lucas Brady-Woods in Denver. In northeastern Arizona, the Cove chapter of the Navajo Nation and the Environmental Protection Agency held a meeting last month on the EPA's proposal to add nearby uranium mines to its Superfund National Priorities list. It would be the first site in the Navajo Nation to be added to the Superfund list. Local tribal officials say that waste from the mining area has contaminated groundwater and livestock in Cove and other nearby chapters. For Rocky Mountain Community Radio, Chris Clements of KSJD filed this report. We're heading out of the Cove chapter house and heading up. That's Kenyon Larson, a remedial project manager for the EPA. He's one of the people responsible for the agency's remediation and cleanup of hazardous waste sites across the United States. On a clear morning in May, he and Cove Chapter President James Benali set out on an old dirt road bound for the Lukachukai Mountain Mining District. On our right, we pass by a string of horses. Who brought their horses in? The little ones are so cute. You can have them. Are those yours? No. Little ones? Oh my They're gosh. They're feral horses. They're feral? Yeah. 
We hear a strange noise coming from the Jeep as we make our way up through the mountains. What you're hearing is um, our Jeep singing. Yeah, she sings. That's her transmission making the sound. Cove is a small community near the foothills of the Lukachukai Mountains. As the Jeep lumbers across washes the color of scarlet, Larson describes the countryside stretched out in front of us. So we're leaving um, Indian Route 33 here off to the left to go up on a dirt road up to Mesa 5. And this is uh, Cove Wash North. Or no, this is Main Cove, Cove Wash Middle, the main wash that drains the, the mesas of the Malukachukai Mountains. Red rock cliffs stand in the distance, jutting out from seemingly endless expanses of sagebrush. Uranium mining in the Lukachukai area began in the early 1950s as part of a post-World War II mining boom in the Navajo Nation when the U.S. government was eager to create and stockpile nuclear weapons. After the end of the Cold War, many of the uranium mines were simply abandoned, including some in the Lukachukai Mountains, instead of being safely closed off to the elements. Dozens of these mines were tunneled into the sides of mesas in the mining district, and there are over 100 piles of exposed uranium mine waste scattered throughout the mountains. Tribal community leaders like Benali say that wells in the region have been contaminated from a legacy of mining, leading to the contamination of livestock that graze nearby. According to Benali, many in his community suffer from health issues related to past uranium mining activities. In March, the EPA proposed adding the Mining District to its National Priorities List, or NPL. It would mean more money would be available for the community and that several unremediated uranium mines would be dealt with. It would also mean a public health assessment would be performed in the Cove community to determine the impacts of past uranium mining activities on residents' health. Many of these mining roads have not been maintained since their original use. Thickets of sage, juniper, and wildflowers make finding the correct route to the mining sites difficult. So we're, we've reached the top of the mesa. Now we're above the um, saltwash member, and so it was mined underneath us. And on the top here, the miners moved all the waste up and then carried it out on these roads. Uh Larson parks the Jeep near the cliffside and we hop out. This, this, this butte right here. Right behind, that's where our cattle graze during the summer. So behind this other butte is where we had our sheep camp. So we either hoofed it or we rode horses. And then there were times when we, my cousins and I, we got together and we rode horses all over this place. Benali says many of his constituents in Cove have sheep camps that move according to the seasons. People have Winter camp, spring camp, summer camp, fall camp. And ours was behind this butte over here. And our cattle was over here. Residents of Cove were still relying on the Cove Wash watershed as a source of drinking water until about 20 years ago when the area switched to a municipal water source. Near the edge of the mesa, Larson points to the ground. Waste pile, this is old trash from the miners. one of their camps. We walk for a few more minutes before Benali motions us to stop. But now, again, like I said, uh, even here, you can see some waste piles right there. They slough off into, and then you have a drainage right here. Even though the EPA has proposed adding the mining district to the NPL, Benali says his community doesn't just want the uranium waste to be buried or covered. They want the piles to be removed entirely. To be frank, they don't want any waste pile, period. 
It doesn't. It doesn't matter whether it's designed or not. They just don't want any waste pile within the midst of their community. On the ride back, Benali says that he's considering writing a letter to President Joseph Biden to ask him to dedicate more federal resources to the region. One of his uh, promises that he would deliver environmental justice. Yeah. And I was going to ask him, point blank. I said, if this these sites were within the populated area out in the eastern seaboard, they would be cleaned up. He would wait for it more than 75 plus years. According to Larson, it's likely that the final decision whether or not to add the mining district to the NPL will be made in late September. But before that happens, in July, Larson says the EPA will begin to use new cleanup technology to remove contaminated soil from areas around Cove. For KSJD, I'm Chris Clements. The National Weather Service forecast for the western San Juans calls for a 20% chance of showers and thunderstorms tonight with mostly clear skies and a low of around 40 degrees. Saturday should be sunny during the day and clear at night. The high is near 80 degrees with a low in the mid-40s. Sunday, expect sunny skies with a chance of showers and thunderstorms and a high near 80 degrees. Sunday night should be mostly clear with a low around 45 degrees. This has been the news for Friday, June 30th. Thanks for listening. If you have a story idea or a news tip, call the news team at 970-728-3206.